Our speaker challenges us as well, thinking about the Trinity. How would you like this to be your resume? B.A., Brown University, 1986, magna cum laude, religious studies. Master of Divinity, Princeton Theological Seminary, 1989, magnum cum laude, philosophical theology. Ph.D., Princeton Theological Seminary, 1998, magna cum laude, systematic theology, <laughs> awarded a doctoral award and the homiletics award. Dr. Rigby's dissertation was the real word, really became real flesh. Karl Barth's contribution to a feminist incarnational Christology. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> That's our speaker. <laughs> just in her early life, she was just getting started. But she found a home at the Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, where she's been teaching for 25 years, publishing articles, writing books, writing a column for the Dallas Morning News. They once described Professor Rigby as one of the greatest theologians of our time. They said she's not only one of the great contemporary theologians, but she can span the gap between church and society, giving attention to theology, politics, and sociology, allows her to help shape the world, not just follow in its wake. Dr. Rigby has shown special ability to take these what can be complex, difficult, some people call them intimidating or esoteric or arcane theological propositions or Christian doctrines and make them come to life in a way that they make a difference for everyday Christians trying to walk as a follower of Christ. She is a person we have learned already since she's been with us that's willing to speak but also to listen to ask questions, but also offer answers when she is asked. She can write clearly in highly academic ways and yet also in personal family ways, share her faith with us. She shares her life with her husband, Bill, who is a professor also of philosophical theology. I just couldn't quite imagine what table conversation at their house was like. She said it was like that until they had kids and then it was all about the children. They have two teenagers, Xander and Jessica. In the introduction of her book, Holding Faith, uh, which has become a very popular book, she was just sharing with us that they're reprinting. They're in the second printing. That's if you don't know, that's pretty rare for a text on Christian doctrine. That doesn't happen really often. She writes, we are the current generation of theologians so let's appreciate what we have inherited and then imagine what we can build from there. I think she is helping us build our theological vocabulary, our understanding of our faith in deeper ways, particularly around God as Trinity and what difference that makes in terms of how we have a Christian life that's a part of the life of God. We're delighted, Dr. Rigby, to have you. We appreciate you being here. Joel's going to lead the choir in a special anthem, and then we'll hear Dr. Rigby speak about the Trinity and salvation for us this evening. It has been such a joy to be with you in these days and to work with such talented ministers as David and Joel. Uh, my dad used to sing that song. He had a baritone voice. 
and uh, sang many church concerts, and he's here in the room with me right now. Thank you for the ministry to me. Uh, I think we should have a rule that anytime John 3.16 is quoted, we should have to quote John 3.17 with it. That's for God sent not God's Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I think sometimes we hear John 3.16 as for God so loved the world that he, gave his, that he sent his only begotten Son to die and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But it doesn't have to die in it, <laughs> in the verse. I think for years I've read that into the verse because there's so much emphasis on the Father giving the Son to die. But as the choir so beautifully uh, reminded me of just now, God's motive was love, not to condemn, but to love to love. This is what we've been talking about when we talk about the Trinity, that in the life of God, there is love because God isn't singular. God is three. God is one and three. Don't let's go into that again. But in the communal life of God, God is love in God's very being. When God loves us, God isn't going out of God's way to be something God is not. But God is acting consistently with who God is as the one who so loves the world and doesn't want to condemn the world. What do we make of that when we think of salvation? Often we think of salvation in terms of God will rescue some and condemn some, but certainly there'll be some kind of judgment, right? We're gonna mess with that a little tonight. I understand that that's a risky thing to do, but I understand too that probably a lot of us have a a lot of questions about the idea that the Father sent the Son to die. That's a question that many of us have long had sitting in the pews. Um, I remember when I was a little kid sitting in church and hearing that rhetoric, I asked a lot of questions about it. Uh, why can't God just forgive me? I asked. You just forgive me, I would say to my parents. And they would be a little stumped. I'm going to get into that a bit. Um, but we want to think about salvation in relation to Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity. First person is the Creator, God the Father. We talked this morning about the sighing Creator, who isn't only the Almighty who creates us, as in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel picture, the creation of Adam, pointing down and creating us and zapping and making everything beautiful and good, although that's part of what God does. But God, as the triune creator, includes the cross, includes entering into our brokenness, includes sighing at our brokenness, and, and includes the work of mending our brokenness. Tonight we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. But we want to talk some about the Redeemer, Christ, dancing around with the Almighty Father kind of changes the way we think of almightiness when Jesus is on that cross dancing with the Father, doesn't it? And with what the Spirit has to do with salvation, with Christ's redeeming work. Um, if I can have a moment of personal privilege, um, David was um, generous to talk about my time uh, at Austin Seminary and coming there 25 years ago. I have a friend who was in my first theology class 
who's sitting here, who's now retired. Ro would you stand up, Roxy? This is Roxy Sullivan, my friend, my first student in first theology class. And she and my other students, honest to goodness, shaped the book, Holding Faith, from years of teaching people like Roxy. Roxy, here I am, still talking about the Trinity. <laughs> yeah, go, go. And w can you tell everyone what church you pastored? Wow, that's great. Thanks so much for coming out and being here. I'm going to start with a sermon today, kind of a sermon lecture. I can do that, right? I figure I'm in the pulpit anyway. We'll uh, go that direction to get what I want out to you, and then I'll probably add a few things at the end and leave some time for questions. I'm guessing you have a lot to say at this point. I've been talking a lot, and whenever you talk about the cross, and redemption and salvation, especially when Methodists talk to Presbyterians, we have questions and comments. So I'm gonna open up some space for that, maybe a little earlier than I have in other sessions. And if you don't say anything, I'll fill up the time. No worries, I got plenty of material. But I'd like to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. And I think I'll read it even though you probably know it already, just to get some details. Let's get some details. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods of the pigs, were, oh, the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even one young goat so I could have a, a party with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who had devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. 
Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and, I, and everything that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The idea that the son was sent by the father to die and that this was necessary in order for the father to be able to forgive us has never made much sense to me. If God loves us no matter what, if God so loves the world, why can't God just forgive us? I mentioned that I asked this question from an early age. I was always theological trouble, I guess, uh, pointing out to my parents that they always said they forgave my brother and me unconditionally. Even if they did give us some uh, form of punishment, the punishment was not contingent Uh, The punishment wasn't necessary for their forgiveness. It was to improve our behavior, not as a kind of penance or as as a payment for our sin, right? So why couldn't just, why couldn't God just forgive, I asked them. How could Jesus dying really help anything anyway? And how could something as terrible as the cross be something God wanted or needed? Hmm. My mom and dad and Sunday school teachers in our little Presbyterian church up in Babylon, New York, the wicked city of Babylon, I was baptized in the Babylon town pool, Methodist style. I gave a public confession of faith, well, some Methodist style, some Presbyterian style, and was baptized by a Presbyterian minister named James Spurgeon. So I'm kind of a denominational mutt. Um, The answers that my teachers, my pastor, my parents delivered were spoken so concisely and with so much certainty, I figured you had to be a grown-up before you could understand. They would say to me, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, they'd tell me. We should be on that cross. You should be on the cross, they would tell me, but Jesus took your place. It's God's greatest gift to us in love God died in Jesus Christ. And so I tried to imagine what I, who was a really well-behaved eight-year-old, could possibly have done so wrong that it necessitated the God who created the cosmos to send his son down here to die on the cross. A price had to be paid, a grown-up explained to me. We sinned, and the penalty for sin is death, quoting Romans, right? So God gave his only son to die in our place. Jesus died for us because he loves us. Is there any truth to these statements that were taught to us, whether Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, over and over again about how it is that Jesus saves us? Is there any falsehood? Is there anything about this statement that is positively untrinitarian? inconsistent with who God is as the God who so loves the world? Is there any way we can and should interpret Jesus's violent death as a loving act? And even if we can reconcile violence and love, what do we make of the persistent claim that God requires a price to be paid? This claim, by the way, came from Bishop Anselm of Canterbury, one of the most important theologians of all time in the 12th and 13th century, 
uh, Anselm wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Human, in which he argued that we had violated God's honor when we sinned, and because God is perfectly righteous, there had to be satisfaction made to the honor of God. Christ, having lived a sinful life, died on the cross and accrued merit. You have to think feudalism to understand the terms. He accrued merit that was repaid to restore God's honor so that we could receive the gift of salvation. For Anselm, our salvation is actually the merit accrued by Jesus Christ by dying. Since he didn't owe God a debt, he got kind of extra credit. And that's what he handed over to us as salvation. And this is the operative uh, understanding of salvation still today, even though we're not in a feudalistic system. We have to think maybe of we're in a global capitalistic transactional system. And I don't know how that compares to feudalism, but I do know that every time I go into Walgreens, here I go, another Walgreens example, uh, a cashier asks me if I want to redeem points, right? And what, what happens to our understanding of redemption when uh, Walgreens is defining it? It's not just Walgreens. They act like you're getting a, a great prize, and all you have to do is enter your zip code, and answer a question, and it's all yours. $2 off the $43 uh, purchase. Um, is that how redemption works? Is that how salvation works? Well, I know you're going to say no. <laughs> I know you're going to say no, but um, maybe we aren't ready to say no loudly enough yet. I, I threw this out the other day at the workshop. Was that just yesterday morning? Um, the thieves on the cross who are with Jesus, one of them recognizes Jesus and, and, and asks him if he will remember him when he comes into the kingdom. Remember that? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Traditionally, we think that that thief winds up in paradise because he said yes to the Walgreens cashier and hit the button and put in his zip code. But what about the thief who derided Christ. He doesn't make it, right? How do you know? How do you know Jesus wasn't talking to both of them? Or maybe he was saying, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? But that doesn't necessarily mean you're excluded from coming over to my house for dinner, right? So do you think we have enough controversial stuff on the table <laughs> yet? I'm just saying, if you think only one thief made it, what does that say about our understanding of salvation? Is it really free? Is grace free? Or is there some little thing that we have to do? Some button to punch, some concession to be made, some acknowledgement, okay? Back to the sermon. Is there any truth to the statements said over and over to, uh, over and over to us that Jesus saves us by dying on the cross? Um, I remember how excited I got sometime when I was in college when I sat down and really studied the so-called parable of the prodigal son. I was then in inner varsity Christian fellowship, which was a step very much to the left of my upbringing, just to give you some context, okay? You know, my, my friends drank beer and danced, and it took me a while to catch up with them. I'm still trying. <laughs> um, 
Uh, it was fascinating to, fascinating to me that this was a story about forgiveness and reconciliation, but where is the cross in this story of the pro parable of the prodigal son? It seemed to me, at, at least at the time, that the father simply, seem, seamlessly, and completely forgave. No sacrifice was required. No economy of exchange had to be satisfied. What I saw in the Father was immediate, unconditional love and celebration, period. Uh, by the way, the guy who started fighting with Anselm in the 13th century about Anselm's view was a guy named Peter Abelard. Do you, did you ever see the movie uh, Abelard et Eloise? It was dubbed from the French. It's the same guy. I see it's all at the top of your list of favorite movies. Okay, we'll skip over that. Uh, but he said, to, he said in relation to Abelard, I don't even recognize your God, Abelard said. What kind of God can't just forgive us? It's like God has to follow certain rules. Oh, they sinned. I got to send in my son to die. If God has to follow rules, then God is not God. The rules are higher than God. You see Abelard's point? Yeah. Uh, well, I was told when I tried to share my emerging insights about Luke chapter 15 with a friend from an university Christian fellowship, um, maybe the story doesn't talk about the cross, but it's focused on what we need to do on our side. We need to repent and to confess to God that we're sinners, and then and only then will we be forgiven. Oh, I thought, well... That causes kind of a problem, because in this story, you don't really know how sincere the younger son is, do you? He's out there, I mean, maybe he's sincere in his repentance. He's out there eating the husks in a situation where there are um, not eating the husks. They don't even give him the husks. He's out in a situation where there's famine, he has nothing to eat, and he thinks of a plan. I know what I'll do. I'll go home and say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please hire me as one of your hired hands. Was he sincere? Was it another strategy? We know the guy is fairly manipulative. I don't think you can tell. But what we do know for sure is before the elder son can even get home, that father is running out to him. Before he can get through his speech, the father has embraced him. Um, you know, it would make sense if the father um, was watching out the window for his son and saw him coming back. I think he watched out that window a lot. This is God's unrelenting redemption, uh, unstoppable redemption. Um, I think the father watched out that window a lot, but uh, wouldn't it make more sense if the father said, ah, there, he, he's coming, I knew he'd come back. Let's see, what am I going to do? I think I'll just sit right here and see what he has to say for himself. You know, I can't sit because you can't see me over there. Imagine me sitting. Um, you hear the, who is it? It's your son. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. Yeah. Okay. Um, you want, what do you want? I'm wondering if you'll hire me as one of your hired hands. The father would be very benevolent if he opened the door a crack and said, sure, go into the barn, sleep there a while, we'll see how you do, I'll give you a second chance. I want to show that you mean it. The father would be extra benevolent if he said, come on in and made him a peanut butter sandwich. 
and gave him a cup of cold black coffee left over from breakfast. But to throw him a feast, that guy, that father, had real issues. If I were that, father, that father's pastor, I'd send him to a therapist. I'd say, you have no boundaries. Your kids are walking all over you. Wouldn't we? God has some issues. God doesn't have good boundaries. God comes after us and after us and after us and after us. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's John 21, my summary. Right, when he comes back to Peter, God in the Old Testament, Trinitarian God, it's not just Jesus. God goes after Israel, after Israel, gets mad at Israel, says, I'm leaving you, that's it. I can't live without you, come on back. Over and over and over again. Therapy, I tell you, therapy. Um, If the younger son had been more explicitly sorry than the father receiving his apologies mercifully, with the father receiving his apologies mercifully, the story would be easier to fit together with the way we understand the world actually to work. It would be more logical, right? It would fit, for example, with the Left Behind series, wouldn't it? We're not like those Tim LaHaye people, are we? We're better than them. We understand grace. We try. (laughs) Okay. Left behind is perfectly logical. You don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not in. Back to that thief, right? Back to that thief. Um, what, What would make it more manageable is if the father weren't so excessive in what he offered the son. What is it about us that leads us to try to moderate things when it comes to our relationship with God? To try to balance scales we know cannot possibly be balanced. In other words, God does this, and we, the least we can do is that. God's done so much, the least you could do is give 10% of every dollar. God does this, the least you could do is teach a little more Sunday school. God does this, the least we could do is show a little gratitude. God does this, the least we could do is type in our uh, postal code, zip code. Uh, Why do we develop give-and-take formulas for how forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and redemption work? I still find myself trying to balance out the excesses of the Luke 15 story. The other day, for example, I started thinking it might work to say the elder son is being called to sacrifice for the sake of the younger son's restoration. Maybe that's where the cross is, see, in the story. Like many of us hardcore Christians, you know, the types who show up on Sunday night to hear about (laughs) redemption, points for us. I have special sympathy for the elder son. We know we're the elder son. It really does seem like he is put upon. He is, by his own testimony and his father's confirmation, reliable, hardworking, and responsible. And suddenly he's being asked to go into an extravagant party for a squandering brother who is none of these things. He's being asked to celebrate this one who has not simply been given a second chance, but has been showered with riches, a ring, a robe, new sandals, a fatted calf, a party. When the elder accuses his father of acting unjustly by honoring this son of his and giving nothing to him, who is certainly more worthy, the elder son couldn't be more correct. The elder son is correct. And the father, the elder son would win in court. 
And the, and the judge would put the father into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, if it were Judge Judy. My mother-in-law watches Judge Judy a lot, and she's always saying things that I wonder if they really say in court. Any judges here who can explain this to me? Um, the father doesn't even try to argue back when the elder son says, uh, uh, this son of yours came home and you never give me a party. What does the father say to the elder son? Doesn't argue back. He doesn't say, son, I'm afraid you don't understand New Testament inheritance law. Let me review. A lot of commentaries say that. They go on and on and on and on and on about how the elder son is incorrect. Not really the point of the text. Um, the father looks kind of blankly at the son. I wasn't there, but um, like I said this morning, I'm a theologian, so I make things up. And says, my son, what? I don't think the way you do. I'm always with you. You're always with me. Don't you realize that everything I have is yours? blows me away. If we walked around in this world knowing that everything God has is ours, our whole life would be different. I remember when we brought our son Alexander home. He's the one with the car. <laughs> it's on my mind. He's okay so far. Um, uh, he was in the bassinet, and my husband caught me looking at him. You know, when you bring a baby home, you're waiting and waiting and waiting for them to go to sleep so you can make a phone call or, or take a nap, and then when they go to sleep, you just stare at them until they wake up. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm looking over the bassinet, and I'm saying to him, Alexander, this is your house, 12406 Adelphi Cove. This is your house. Because it was baffling to me that this kid had such a claim on everything I had, right? And didn't even know his name. Now that, that's what God does with us, looks over our crib, our bassinet, and says, everything I have is yours. That's what he's saying to the elder son. Everything I have is yours. Um, it would make more sense if he said to the elder son, uh, let me tell you something, son. I know something about how this world works. You know, dad talk. And I'm here to tell you, I miss dad talk. But I can imagine it. I'm here to tell you that there's one, that this is one way you need to start stepping up to my stepping up to the plate. I'm not good at dad talk. Stepping up to the plate as my eldest. You need to start making more sacrifices, son, instead of asking for rewards. Look at the sacrifices I've made, giving up half of what I own before I'm even dead, watching by the window every day, hoping against hope that your brother will return swallowing my pride and running out to meet him. This is the kind of thing that leaders of families need to do if we're going to hold everything and everyone together. I hope you'll give some serious consideration to following in my footsteps and making sacrifices yourself. Suck it up and come into the party, son, for the sake of family, for the sake of love. Not bad. Such a speech offered by the father would have lent a nice kind of balance to the story. The younger son gets too much, but the older son gets too little. So some zero-sum quantity of blessing is somewhere logically retained. Zero-sum quantity. Someone gets more, someone gets less. It's just the way the world works. Suck it up. The problem is, of course, that this is not the speech the father actually gives. There it is, right in front of him, the opportunity to insert a significant bit of cross. 
Sacrifice yourself, son, so your brother can be restored. But the father does not even come close. He does not ask the elder son to sacrifice. He does not think in terms of burden or sacrifice at all. My son, he says again, I am always with you and you are always with me. Don't you realize that everything I have is yours? What in the world is this response about? What is the older son supposed to do with it? It seems to be made in the order of grace rather than in the order of justice. It seems to ignore not only the struggles of the elder son, but the genuine sacrifices the father himself has made. But it doesn't seem like the father is thinking in such terms at all. The father, in fact, resists thinking sacrificially. He's all about joy, all about celebration, all about being together, all about being with. Trinity, relationships. Reminds me of God the Creator saying to Adam and Eve, all that I have is yours. You know what their only escape is? To go for the one thing that God says to, to leave alone. And I, frankly, don't think they went for the one thing because they couldn't bear not to have one thing. I think what happened was they couldn't bear to have everything because grace is what takes us out. It's not judgment, it's not law, it's grace. It undoes us and remakes us into something altogether new. And to stand in the face of grace is to be transformed and to be taken up into the life of God. Grace, grace, the grace that comes with redemption demands everything that we are. Not just a little something, not just 10%, but everything. Once you're a member of the household, you take out the trash because it's your trash, right? That's what we tell our kids, we should do it more in church. Um, Or whatever, teach Sunday school. To be with, that's what the father wants, that's why he runs out and runs a far distance and meets his younger son, only to be with, all else falls by the wayside. And that's why he leaves the very party he is so excited about. The father looks around at that party and says, my other son's not here. He is now the prodigal, the elder son. The father can't bear it. Boundary issues. He doesn't, I had a therapist once who told me, who would go like this every time I complained about someone who didn't like me. She, so you got to flick that off. I'm telling you, I've made this point too many times, but... The father didn't do a lot of that. Um, He leaves the very party he's so excited about, and he begs, he begs, he begs the elder son to come in. This father who is so joyous, this father whom we would probably send to the therapist. He's excessive, but he is also very focused. He's not simply with everyone in a general, warm, fuzzy kind of way. He wants, on the contrary, to be with two very particular people. We've been talking about the Trinity being all in all and particular. All in all and and particular acts of God. His younger son, who has gone away and come back, he wants to be with, and his older son, who has not yet come in. And the father is relentless and vulnerable and even embarrassing in what he does to be with these two. This story would be easier if the father were a little less fatherly in his focus. You know how fathers and mothers are, always fixated on their kids, always looking for a call or an email, 
always hoping for more time, for a few more seconds of intimate connection, always watching the horizon, listening for a key in the door, hoping for a return home or an arrival at a party. The persistent desire to be with can be kind of annoying when you're the kid, especially when you're a grown-up kid who's acting responsibly and wants to do your part. It would be a lot easier if the father in the story were less of a parent and more like the great Gatsby. You remember Gatsby, the star of the book all of us read in English class, Ruth. Where's Ruth, the English professor? Um, uh, Gatsby knew how to throw a great party. He threw great parties all the time. He called for fatted calves to be slain and for wine to be poured. He wanted everyone to celebrate, everyone in general, everyone he could get. He didn't even remember exactly who had come to his parties or even who had been invited exactly. The point is, anyone who showed up was welcome to come and enjoy the excess he provided. Maybe the great Gatsby helps us imagine what God would look like without the cross, a God without any need to be anyone in particular, a generous, benevolent God who opens his arms wide with the invitation, come one, come all, a God who invites us into the party but leaves it to us to decide whether we will show up or not. Post-poet Christian Wyman writes that such a wide-open understanding of God is appealing but ultimately not very satisfying. He talks about the fog of God, the experience many people have of feeling vaguely loved with glimpses here and there of how they're in some sense at one with the universe. Something that comes to mind along these lines is Paul Tillich's famous sermon, You Are Accepted. Accept the fact that you are accepted, Paul Tillich instructs us. And of course, there's some consolation in this. There's a party to go to and we are welcome and we can show up if we want to. But the parable in Luke 15 pushes matters beyond such supersized generosity and generalized niceties. If we don't show up at the party, it warns us, we will be sought out. And when we do return home, we will not be permitted to slip quietly and inconspicuously into a place long ago set up for us at the table. On the contrary, there will be attention drawn to us. There will be robes put on us and food prepared for us and wine poured out in celebration of new life. There will be a joyful feast in the kingdom of the Father's estate because this one, this one, this one, you one, me one, David one, has been lost and now is found. It would be an occasion when everyone who shows up will be fed, but particular ones will be called to be present. Wyman notes that modern conceptions of God are mystical and valuable, but tend to portray God as distant. We talked about that this morning. It is our confession of Christ, he says, that reminds us God is near, that God seeks us out as particular individuals and goads us to behave in particular ways. If the God of the fog is unsatisfying, Wyman notes, The God known in Christ is at times quite aggravating. Christ, he said, is a shard of glass in our gut. Christ is God crying, I am here and I have not only, and I am here not only in what exalts and completes and uplifts you, but here in what appalls, offends, and degrades you, here in what activates and exacerbates all that you would call not God. 
to walk through the fog of God toward the clarity of Christ is difficult because of how unlovely, how ungodly that clarity often turns out to be, end quote. It strikes me that the Father is pretty ungodly if being godly means keeping one's distance and letting everyone come to you. The Father has the habit of being a little too eager, a little too transparent, a little too close. He might even be seen as degrading himself, allowing the younger son to take his inheritance for being overly vulnerable when he runs out calling for a party and finally when he begs the elder son to please come in. The elder son seems to find the behavior of his father to be inappropriate and distasteful, and maybe we do too when we start to think about it. This is what the cross is, or where the cross is, I think, in the parable. I think it's here, in the vulnerable action of the father. It is in the father holding nothing back from his sons. God holds nothing back from us, nothing. Even when we kill him, He says, you've done your best to get rid of me, and I am back, and I still love you. It's the father risking being demeaned for the sake of these particular beloved ones. And maybe most of all, it is in the father not even considering that he might be making a sacrifice. As it says in Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, for the sake of the joy that was before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. That seems to be the father to a T. My husband, Bill, gave my brother, Mark, a framed photograph for Christmas. It's a picture Bill took of my brother's seven-year-old son, Oscar, running down the sidewalk toward his father. Oscar is running down the sidewalk with an expression of the purest joy on his face. And in the foreground of the picture, you see only my brother's hand extended and open. He's facing Oscar, waiting to receive him. The God of our imagination waits patiently for us to run to him, ever ready to receive, ever ready to bless. But this God is too foggy, too distant, too predictable, too respectable. The God we see in Luke 15, by contrast, is the God we know in Jesus Christ. This God cannot wait to receive us, and so comes running toward us. This God is running down the sidewalk even now, a look of joy and expectation on God's face, eager to be embraced. God runs out to the pathway to meet the younger son. God runs out of the party in search of the elder. I know that, this, that there's more to understanding the cross than this, and we can talk about that. But I propose this as a start. I propose the cross begins with God's exhilarated, joyous, ungodly running to meet and to find us, holding nothing back. And I think it continues with a running toward us that keeps on and keeps on and keeps on even when we pull our hand away. Even when we refuse to go into the party, even when we deny and wish dead, even when we yell, crucify him. In this Lenten season, may we be graced with the capacity to receive the God who never stops running to meet us. May we be subject to the work of the Spirit as we rethink the cross in ways that revel in the ungodly clarity of God's love. That's, that's the gist of what I think about this. And it's eight o'clock. Should I open it up for questions? And see? And if 
P feel free to push back. I, I know some of this is controversial. I really do. I can handle it. I was just with the Baptists a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Campbell University, they were great. They were like, wow, never thought about it that way. Yeah. You've certainly given us food for thought here. I thank you. Thank you. Um, what if we're already there and and we really just don't know it? Uh, yeah. This is some notes I took. I mean, is salvation in essence just our forgiveness, trying to heal, or maybe to heal the separation of God and man? Yeah. And. Uh, and that way, the emphasis uh, is not necessarily on the cross per se, but on the life after the cross. Yeah, right. Because a loving God, would a loving God want the cross? I don't think so. But the, a loving God would not sanction that or would not approve of that. Yeah, that's exactly the question. That's really good. It gives me a chance to say some okay. of the other things. Let me give it a shot. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, first, I think you had a few questions packed in there. The first one is, uh, what if we're already loved by God and don't know it? Um, you've already expanded your understanding of salvation in that question, and I think that's great. We still tend to think about salvation as fire insurance right, about where we go when we die. And personally, I hope fire insurance is included in the deal. But salvation is more than just about fire insurance. Salvation starts right now. Salvation is about living in light of the reality of this unconditional love, of this unrelenting grace of God, living our lives in relation to the truth of God's claim on us. And so there's a sense in which um, uh, some days I'm more saved than others, right? If salvation is bigger than just fire insurance. I don't think I move in and out of salvation or you move in and out of salvation, uh, but in the sense of fire insurance, but in the sense of, well, every time I do something wrong, I've forgotten who I am before God. I've turned away from the reality of God's claim on me as God's child. I've forgotten that everything God has in, is, our, is mine, is mine. Every single time I sin. I've turned away from the reality. Um, oh man, I forgot the second question you asked. Oh, would God sanction the cross? Yeah, this is a hard, uh, hard question. Um, um, I think that the, the cross was not necessary, but was inevitable. It's inevitable, I think, for God so loved the world that God gave God's only begotten Son that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God sent God's Son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Um, but what is the purpose of God sending the Son? Was it to die or was it to show us that the character of the triune God is to love us and always has been that since God created us? And uh, what happened is that that led to us to crucify him. Because you either have to respond to that message by being transformed or get rid of the guy to try to maintain the status quo. Uh, he was uh, uh, executed by the politics of his day. 
as he would have undone everything and still will undo everything. If we start living the way Jesus taught, he's just totally impractical. I mean, he didn't hire the right people, you know, a bunch of fishermen and housewives and said things like, love your enemies, do good to those who harm you, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I mean, uh, he was too much of a threat. Um, So we crucified him. So in that sense, um, it's not about God sanctioning the cross, but God was willing in Jesus Christ to enter even into death. And just for good measure, I have to do a little poke to you Methodists. I think the descent into hell just kind of emphasizes there's no place that's untouched by God's presence, no place. Even though I understand we added that when you weren't at the meeting and that's the real problem, yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah. So the the point of the cross is to say God is with us. All the realies in my dissertation, I, I, you know, want to cower my head. Uh, The real word really became real flesh. And now I'm going to say really again. If the incarnation says God is with us, the cross said God is really with us. And when Christ rises in body, God is with us still. I mean, Jesus could have left his body behind and resurrection would be a lot more uh, easy to understand philosophically. We could have said, ah, you know, the body isn't important. Resurrection is a spiritual thing. But Jesus drags his body on up to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You see how this is about everything Jesus is, salvation. The incarnation, the the body, body is included in salvation. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night. I can slip some more about that in to tomorrow's theme. Thanks.